Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Booker shortlisted novelist Otessa Moshfeg on her books Homesick for Another World and McGlue, and then historian Lucy Hughes Hallett on her debut novel Peculiar Ground. Otessa Moshfeg is a fiction writer from Boston. Her novel Eileen was awarded the 2016 Penn Hemingway Award and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Her short fiction has earned her the Paris Review Plimpton Prize, a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts, a Pushcart Prize and an O. Henry Award. And her collection, Homesick for Another World, which was published in January 2017, we're going to be talking about today, as well as McGlue, which was her debut novel and is about to be published for the first time in the UK. Otessa, welcome to Little Atoms. Thanks for having me. Homesick for Another World, first of all, is a collection of short stories. Would you say it has a theme? Uh... They're not collected. They were written mostly in the order that they came out Mm -hmm. um, in the book. And I think the theme is, well, I've answered this question so many times that I've stopped really believing in my answer because I've said that it's about, you know, people who are feeling disconnected from reality and or feeling trapped in a paradigm that causes misery and absurdity. But actually... I am preferring to think of this book now as a book just about people um, and the experience of being alive in neither a negative or a positive way. Being alive is weird. It's really weird. And time tends to move linearly, so lives tend to have many stories in them that we can tell. And so these, these stories are about different people. Each story is about a different character but throughout it, I think there's a sense of a consciousness trying to make sense of itself. It's funny you should say that, because as I was reading it, I was thinking, these people are awful. There's, all, there's something wrong with each of these people. They've got these issues. They've got delusions, particularly delusions, which we'll come back to. Mm-hmm. But then I was thinking, well, it seems weird to say these are all awful people. They're just people. Mm-hmm. But what they are is honest, and they're saying things that most people would keep to themselves, I guess. Yeah, I think I think that there's a tradition of this in literature, the kind of confessional. And there's also the tradition in literature where people aren't real and, and it's taken um, for granted that the characters are not real people, that, we're, oh, this is fiction and, and they can act in this fictionalized way. And I'm kind of, I think, playing with both uh, traditions 
I like I consider myself in some ways a satirist. And in some ways, I'm completely sincere. Mm -hmm. Like, when I am making a point in a story, I mean it completely heartfeltedly. And, but I also think people are funny, so I tend to make fun of people a lot. <laughs> and also, going back to, to what you said at the beginning about changing your mind about what the book's about, mm -hmm. what the stories are about. I wanted to talk about how they were written. I mean, you said they were written pretty much in the order that they're presented, is yeah, that right? Yeah, pretty much. So over what sort of period of time? I think... The first two stories I wrote, I was, um, I mean, I've been writing stories since I was 11, but I, I set out to write a collection, and my writing had recently changed. After writing McGlue, mm -hmm. which we'll talk about later, I hope, I had written McGlue, which was in a completely different register, and when I went back to the short story form, discovered that I really didn't feel like bullshitting anymore. Like, I was going to write about people I knew, things that had happened, things I cared about, and was less interested in the aesthetic playfulness or suddenly being a poet but writing prose felt really arrogant and, like, a waste of my time. It's like, well, I shouldn't have to worry about aesthetics anymore. I'd rather just be telling stories. But... We need voices to tell stories. So I started thinking deeply about voice and playing with voice in my fiction. And, like, McGlue is basically monologue, you know? And most of the stories in, in the collection are in first person. And, yeah. and when they're in third person, it's a very deliberate third person yeah. playing with, like, the, you know, the observer or the way that we tell stories, you know, some, some of the tropes that we use as um, writers in third person. An honest woman would be a good example of that. Right. It's in the third person, but you do you sort of switch between the perspectives within that as well, between the two main characters. It does switch perspectives. There, there are two main characters. I think we get a little bit more perspective from one of them than the other. But there is a kind of tonality in the storytelling that, to me, reminds me of like the ways that we're, we're taught to tell a story, like mm -hmm. once upon a time, those kinds of things, which I think are hilarious because where do they actually come from, you know? And the story in the collection, which, which I think is second, and it was the first story that I wrote for this book, which is called Mr. Wu. That's also in third person. And there's something also very storyteller-like to the narrative voice. Um, like the narrator is very aware that it's telling a story. So it's using these sort of sweeping gestures to kind of tantalize you and be funny, and but in a self-aware mode. Now you brought up Mr. Wu. I wanted to talk about the the sort of time and the setting. The stories are like, most of them are set in a sort of vaguely contemporary America. Although... The timing is sort of quite vague. There's often sort of references to things like, I think at one point somebody goes out of a Walkman or something, you know, yeah. it doesn't seem like it's necessarily today. But even the ones that are like explicitly, like Mr. Wu is a story that is explicitly set somewhere else. Mm -hmm. It's still relatively vague. There still seems to be like a number of places where that could be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Would that be right? Well, we know it's China, but China's a huge place. Mm -hmm. So correct. Like, who could be any you know, one of probably thousands of towns in China. And I don't I don't always like naming the precise location of a story because I think 
what it does, what you risk doing when you put, like, if I said that that story took place in Beijing, suddenly the reader is projecting all these associations that he or she has mm-hmm. about Beijing and pictures that they've seen, and you can't help it in the imagination. And in some ways, just saying China, like, you know, like, that was enough. I wanted, I spent a couple years of my life in China and, and wanted to capture what is kind of a vague space on the outskirts of a very specific metropolis. Mm-hmm. Um, but it shouldn't have been named, and it wouldn't have really meant anything to name it for an English or non-Chinese audience anyway, mm-hmm. you know? And then in other stories, it's very obviously New York, or it's very yeah. obviously Los Angeles. Or there's one that's in Hollywood, which right. the story is about somebody trying to make it in Hollywood, so you can't really not right. set it in Hollywood. right. And the time thing as well, is that a sort of deliberate thing as well to make this? There's not like obvious cultural references or things that pin it down Mm -hmm. to a particular time. Yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to be too explicit because I don't, you know, it's like you don't want to, you don't want the audience to see your puppet strings. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to be more evocative of a world. But, you know, some of the stories are are set pre-internet and you wouldn't think of that. You would just say, oh, this, I mean... It's really hard to have a story now without a cell phone in it, mm-hmm. you know. And so, like, I've had to, you know, that that's led me into past worlds. But where, what is it like? You know, what would this? What would the experience like? The, like the story um, that was actually published in Granta a couple of years ago. That, that's in the collection called "Nothing Ever Happens mm-hmm. Here," which is which the is Hollywood the, one. Which, uh, yeah, there are, well, there are several Hollywood mm, ones, sure. right? Um, which is the what the one about a really naive kid from. Idaho or something. Utah, was it? Utah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Utah, who um, rents a room from this landlady who is a gossip columnist and takes a liking to him. There was something about that story where if he had a cell phone, I mean, this is so stupid. But it's like, you know, you these are the kind of considerations you have to make right off the bat when you're writing a story. If he has a cell phone, his mom's going to be texting him. And so much of the story is about him avoiding contacting his mother and having to kind of use his landlady as a liaison with his mother. So, you know, if he was, like, always checking his email, if he was always connected on Facebook, if he was on Instagram posting things about his new life in L.A., it would be a very different story because it's, it is a story about a lonely kid, you know, like trying to make something of himself. And as I said, going back to the, the point you mentioned at the beginning about, you know, changing your mind about what the book's about, as you're writing these and then, you know, the stories get written and then they get collected together to be put into this book and then going through the process of it being published... <laughs> How does your relationship with the stories change over that period of time? The stories start to feel much more real. Like, most of the stories in the collection have been published in magazines, and, you know, there's something that happens when you publish a story. You're not editing it anymore. It's done. You know, you can always edit it later, but it exists in this form and it is what it is, and I, and I kind of accept it. And so um, my relationship with the stories is, is much less stressful than it is with, like, say, my novel Eileen, which I have really complicated feelings about. But the stories, to me, you know, it was a really satisfying collection to write. When I finished it, I felt like I didn't need to write more short stories. And it's been uh, how many years it's been two or three years since I finished writing that book, and I'm just now thinking that I want to write another short story. So there was something. It was like 
you know, not to toot my own horn, but it was like, I nailed it. Like, like I felt it was like a perfect landing when you're a gymnast. You're like, mm-hmm. you don't need to go back and do it again. You know what I mean? No, I've not read Eileen yet. So I wasn't explicitly going to talk about the story, but as much to say, where does Eileen and it's, you know, the the sort of attention you got for that novel come within the sort of scope of writing these stories? Is Are these being written at the time that... Yeah. That's that's going out. So how does that so how does then that sort of reception for that novel change I don't know what change how you feel about these stories or change how you expect these stories to be received? Well, I would hope that more people would buy the book because Eileen established my name as a as an author that, you know, people gave a shit about. So I mean there was a reason I I couldn't have published I couldn't have published this book homesick for another world had I not published Eileen you know I mean it's like I mean I don't know maybe that's not true but that's certainly what it felt like and my experience of this book coming out was really uncomplicated it was like I'm so proud of this book I'm like so happy that the the stories are in a physical form Mm -hmm. now that I can share this with the world like this is what I've been doing you know, um, whereas with Eileen, it was much more tentative and like not it didn't feel as uh, as honest. These stories feel really honest. Eileen feels honest, too, but in a way that was like the narrative voice was so performative. And I could have edited that book for 100 years and I and I still wouldn't have felt like I'd gotten it quite right. Um, but the stories didn't feel that way. Like they are like separate people from me. Yeah. You mentioned that. Sitting down to write this, you decided you wanted to write about things that had happened and people that you knew and and truthful things, which might sound a bit alarming to anyone that's ever read it. How much of the, how much of this is not autobiographical, but like, how, I th- tell us about some of the incidents in it that come out of real life. Well, I mean, pick a story and I can tell you. <laughs> no, Any of them? Okay, well, let's talk about uh, an honest woman, which I want to get onto anyway when we start talking about. Um... An Honest Woman, that came out of um, someone that I knew, that the male neighbor character, that's the one we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's a guy, Jeb. Who's... Yeah, Jeb. Yeah, so I had I had, had this really bizarre experience with a character who moved and talked and behaved exactly quite like that. And I was like, well, this guy is fascinating and strangely alluring, although he was also disgusting. And that's kind of, you know, in the the period that I was writing these stories, disgust and seduction were two, I would say, aspects of of daily living that I was obsessed with. I was mm-hmm. obsessed with my my disgust response and my attraction to it. And I thought a lot about the the delusion of appeal or, or the illusion or the illusion with an eye of um, attractability and how everyone just, you know, sits and shits and sleeps and farts and, mm-hmm. you know, but then like we are all pretending to be not, I shouldn't speak for everybody. A lot of people seem to feel that they must, you know, have poreless skin and look perfect and have no problems and people ask me about the characters in the book and they're like why are are these people so fucked up and I'm like because people are fucked up like we live in a really fucked up world Mm -hmm. show me a person who's perfectly balanced 
you know, who doesn't have issues, like an, who isn't confused, but who's perfectly stable and knows the correct answer. And it's just like, that doesn't exist. That's not the reality we live in. So I met this person who was incredibly charismatic, who turned into this character, Jeb, in the story. And I fucking hate this guy, you know, but I also love him, you know, in real life. And so there was a lot of satisfaction in describing him in this really disgusting way. I was like, I'm going to get you. But then also when you're writing a character, you have the whole process is about compassion and sympathy. You know, like I won't understand this character if I'm just seeing him. Even if you're writing a villain, you need to understand the villain's M.O. Yeah, you know? and, and Jeb is, I mean, that's what's so great about this story. And, and he's, a, he's both physically repulsive and repulsive in his behavior. And he's like pathetic, deluded attempt to seduce this young woman that's moved in. But beyond that, you make him, you know, you feel for him. You make him sympathetic. Mm-hmm. You can see that this is a guy that's, you know, he's obviously had a long life of people being repulsed by him and suffering. And, you know, although his behavior is reprehensible, you, you feel for him as well. Yeah. I mean, he also doesn't do anything all that bad. No, no. You know? Well, he doesn't get the chance to, should we yeah. say. Well, yeah, I mean, she's she's a complicated character too. She could have left at any time. Yeah, and I think also the way in which, probably giving too much about the story away, but like, she's a bit of an asshole. Like, the way that she chooses to mm-hmm. deal with him as well is sort of complicated in that yeah. she in fact she chooses to sort of have fun with him, I guess. You yeah. know, to sort of play with him a little bit, which he deserves, but at the same time, as you said, leaving would have been a bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think her behavior and her response to Jeb alludes to a history of mm-hmm. her relationships with men and that she is very aware that there's a power dynamic mm-hmm. and that there's something to be got, even from the grossest situation. If you get, if she seems to feel um, entertained and um, empowered by humiliating this guy... And also just, like, calling him out on his bullshit in a way that doesn't usually happen when you're reading a story about, like, a predator and a victim, you know? It's like, I didn't want to write that story. That's boring. So what if the quote-unquote victim was just like, I see exactly what you're up to. In fact, like, you couldn't even handle me. (laughs) So, So that was sort of the premise. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Atessa Moshfeg and we're talking about, at the moment, Homesick for Another World, a collection of short stories. And, well, I wanted to look at a couple of other stories more closely, as we've, we've, we've just done with An Honest Woman. And as you asked me to just pick any and you were sort of give examples of, of ways in which some of the stories come out of real life, perhaps we'll do that with both of them as we go along. So let's talk about one of the um, one of the prize-winning stories, Slumming, mm-hmm. which I think was possibly got a couple of favourites, but that was definitely one of them. I really love that story. Tell us about the woman in that, the main sort of character in that story, who she is, and then let's perhaps talk about where that story comes from. Uh, well, the, the main character in the story is a middle-aged single woman who lives in a city, um, who is a teacher and doesn't make a lot of money, but um, finds a property in the countryside and picks it up for pretty cheap and 
she's telling the story of how she began to live a kind of double life in between her school year city time self and this summertime country home self. The country home isn't in some sort of like quaint little village with spas and galleries in it or anything. It's actually just a poor town in the country. And she experiences her own elitism and the privilege that she has as a visitor on vacation in a town where, you know, people are making minimum wage and, you know, have no way out and she's free to come and go. So that's the premise of the story. And she finds that she she makes certain connections with the people there. Uh, she meets a guy who leads her to um, this sort of otherworldly realm of drugs. And I think that's like the part in the story that we realize this isn't just like so-and-so on holiday. Yeah, you know, but it's the, like... her idea of elitism is a, is a delusion in itself. Yeah, she very course. quickly gets sort of sucked into this world. Yeah, yeah. So she, she has this delusion that these drug dealers in the bus station are like some kind of sacred beings that can read her mind in her future and predict what she should feel when, and she buys whatever they have to sell and spends her summers high. So where does where does this story come from? Well, you know, I'm from New England, Mm -hmm. and there's a huge heroin epidemic right now in um, that part of the country, or opioid, like, people are dying. I think it's like a person is dying once every 24 minutes in Massachusetts, which is my home state. And I wasn't thinking so much of that, but I did grow up in a culture where it was like, I grew up in a rich fantasy suburb, although we weren't rich. And I went to a school in the city of Boston and saw that there were a lot of different ways of being and that I had been sheltered. I mean, I knew, like, whatever. It's like that story of you you, you realize that not everybody is um, being taken care of. And growing up in New England, like, there were different zones that I experienced. And one was, like, the zone of, like, the... I don't want to say cookie-cutter suburb, but, you know, like, everybody's happy, everybody's good, everybody's successful. And there's the city, which is, like, exciting. I'm talking about Boston. Like, like exciting and var- varying and, you know, there's different areas and different sections. And, like, some are dangerous and some are good and some are bad and some are fancy and some are not or whatever. But then there are also these towns in between and on the outskirts where, like, who lives here? What what do people do here, you know? And it's, like, usually they're old factory towns where the factory went out of the mill town or, you know, people lost their jobs and the town went to shit. And it's usually, like, oh, that's where the prison is or, like, you know, that's the Salvation Army. And the infrastructure of the town is totally beautiful. And you wonder why the hell (laughs) is this happening? You know, what's happened to the people and there are a lot of drugs, and, and you know, there are drugs everywhere, mm-hmm. obviously, but there are certain places on Earth, it seems, that attract certain kind of drug use or just make drug use more attractive and easy. So I was thinking about that. That's important to me because it's touched people in my life, and I've seen the damage it's caused, and it's, like, so heartbreaking so anyway, basically, I thought about how beautiful 
that part of the country is and how the people in the city are going crazy and like pulling their hair out to try to make enough money to go on vacations, you know, where it's beautiful, where like there are people who have no money who live in beautiful places and like will do anything to get out into the city. So that was sort of one of the places the story came from. I'm starting to sort of lose my mind <laughs> in this room. Just, just one more okay. story then, because I do want to talk about McGlue as well. Um, the last story, A Better Place, mm-hmm. which, again, seems quite different from all of the stories that have gone before. Yeah. Tell us about that story. Where, where does that story come from? That story is the erasure of all the stories that come before it in the collection. For me, that story like sums up in a kind of folktale way the precise problem of being feeling unfit for the world or dissatisfied by it. The only way to leave it is to die, you know, and and, and that's that's the tragic truth. Um, and so the story came to me exactly as it is written. I didn't feel a need to edit it very much at all. And um, I set it in a kind of vague Eastern European village type of place. And I was thinking about life in its most abstract sense and all of the people who had to have lives in order for me to have a life and thinking about my ancestry a little bit and um, particularly on my mother's side. And my, my mom is from Croatia. And, um, you know, it's I haven't spent much time there. I don't speak the language, but it is evocative for me of like the maternal like the magic and the horror of life in some way the thing that I'm most grateful for and the thing that I hate you know when I'm unhappy so it's a story about a a young girl and her twin brother and it's told from her perspective and um she hatches a plan to leave the planet basically (laughs) And is that where the, the title for the, the collection comes from as well? Because yeah. that seems to be the only story that actually relates. Yeah. And that this is, I mean, the, um, the, the, the UK edition here has got, um, has got a you know, picture of some everywhere American town on, on the front cover. But the US edition has literally got a UFO as a yeah, brilliant cover. Was, it's got a UFO idea. on the front. But that's yeah. got nothing whatsoever to do with any of the stories in the, the, in the collection. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess apart from that last one. Well... I would argue, because there, I think several of the, the stories have characters that would not argue with the with a fascination with UFOs. I no, mean, sure. Like, I mean, I'm also when I when I pitched my idea for the US cover, I was like, part of it was like I wanted it to look like a comic book from the 50s, mm-hmm. and in doing that, I felt like I was kind of like taking a piss, you know? They're like, let's not take literature so seriously. Mm-hmm. I think it should be taken seriously on one level, but we also really need to have a sense of humor and some perspective. It's so easy to get um, institutionalized in ways of thinking. So if a book can be something that can outrage you, and it's also something that you could burn, (laughs) you know, (laughs) or use to wipe your butt, like everything is, everything should be permitted, I guess. But also, it is a comedy. And that brings us nicely to McGlue, which, uh-huh. while it was your first book, it's only just been published over here. And so I read McGlue after having read Homesick from Another World. And it's violent and it's brutal and there's, you know, there's vomit and feces and it's 
it's a historical novel, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was quite surprised that the person that had written this novel had written a brilliant, fantastically written, interesting, but ultimately a, a historical novel. Why? Why were you interested in that? Well, it just so happened that that character lived in in the middle of the 19th century. So I needed to set the story then. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you never know when lightning will strike. And when it does, you just have to go with it. And this character, I felt like this character was literally sent to me. It's uh, McGlue is the, is the name of a real person who, you know, I'm not, I don't know where he's buried, probably somewhere in Massachusetts. But he uh, was acquitted for murder in Salem, Massachusetts, for having murdered a man in the port of Zanzibar. And they let him off because he was blackout drunk at the time. And several months earlier, he had jumped off a moving train and cracked open his head. So they're like, you're out of your mind. And, and, and that was the entire article. So I read that article, and it was like the spirit of this guy just came to me. And suddenly I was like hearing the way that he would talk, thinking about his story, how this all happened. And part of it was that like I am from I felt close to him. I felt I felt very close to him having, you know, his experience. I mean, I've never killed anybody, but I certainly at the time I, I was thinking a lot about what it is to lose your mind and mm-hmm. then get it back, you know. But you I mean, you've from New England, and New England obviously has that, you know, that old sort of seafaring, yeah. whaling tradition. But you also, as you've said, you're from a, you know, half Croatian, half Iranian background. Yeah. And it strikes me, I was reminded, particularly of, I've just recently read Sebastian Barry's Days of Our End. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there's a lot of interesting books about America's past that are being written by people that are from either immigrant backgrounds or people that are, you know, writing about. So Barry's book is obviously about the Irish immigrant experience in the sort of Civil War era of America. But it seems like there's much more interesting stuff being written by people with some sort of outsider perspective. Well, that makes perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, because you have perspective. Like, the friends of mine that are, like, I don't know, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th generation American... They have trouble. Like, I am not attached to my identity as an American in the same way that would blind me from certain things that you take for granted. You know, like when when your parents are from different countries, but you're not, you're kind of alone. And you have to be really observant and figure out how a culture works, you know. And so I've been skeptical and fascinated and noticed a lot and you know find my country that that country to be um full of potential you've met you told us who mcglue is and about this idea that he's he's got a head injury as well as well as being a drunk mm-hmm. so most of the most of the story all of the story he's basically either in captivity under under the deck of a ship mm-hmm. or in prison mm-hmm. and he you know he has his drunk or coming off the drink he's got this head injury so most of the time he's either hallucinating or delirious he's telling us the story he's both having these visions of johnson the character that he's suspected of killing and his mother and at some point his mother does actually visit tell us something about writing this in this sort of mode of like somebody who's i guess he's an unreliable narrator Mm -hmm. 
but at the same time writing these sort of like hallucinatory sort of scenes mm-hmm. well in some ways he's totally reliable because what you're reading is simply the voice in his own head and he's experiencing altered states of consciousness sometimes because he's you know probably i don't know he probably has like wet brain or you know he's probably very ill it was a really bad alcoholic mm-hmm. and other times he's you know hitting his head on the wall so that his brain injury will will come back or you know he's doing different things to to fuck with his mind but he's also coming to terms with the truth which is for him i think a beautiful experience and also absolutely devastating and 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 that is what the book is about ultimately is that it's a love story mm-hmm. about how we destroy or how we can destroy the thing we love the most just one other thing for me and then I'll, I'll get you to read something what's next what are you working on uh well i just finished a, a new novel it's called my year of rest and relaxation and that will come out i think both in the states and in the uk may uh 2018 and i'm working on a bunch of new things right now i haven't committed to a project um sort of in limbo yeah I'm going to read um, the opening to a story called A Dark and Winding Road. My parents kept a small cabin in the mountains. It was a simple thing, just four walls and very dark inside. A heavy felt curtain blotted out whatever light made it through the canopy of huge pines and down into the cabin's only window. There was a queen-size bed in there, an armchair, and a wood-burning stove. It wasn't an old cabin. I think my parents built it in the 70s from a kit. In a few spots, the wood beams were branded with the word home right. But the spirit of the place made me think of simpler times, olden days, yore, or whenever it was that people rarely spoke except to say there was a storm coming or the berries were poisonous or whatnot, just the bare essentials. It was deadly quiet up there. You could hear your own heart beating if you listened. I loved it. Or at least, I thought I ought to love it. I've never been very clear on that distinction. I retreated to the cabin that weekend in early spring after a fight with my wife. She was pregnant at the time, and I suppose she felt entitled to treat me terribly. So I went up there to spite her, yes, and in hopes that she would come to appreciate me in my absence, but also to have one last weekend to myself before the baby was born and my life as I'd known it was forever ruined. I've been talking to Atessa Moshveg. We've been talking about Homesick for Another World, which is a collection of short stories which is out now, and also McGlue, which is out... When is it actually out? Do you know? Today. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, which has also just been released in the UK for the first time. Atessa, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about them. Thanks for having me. <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips and adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Natalie Haynes. You're listening to Resonance FM. And this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Lucy Hughes-Hallett is the author of The Pike, which won the Samuel Johnson Prize, the Duff Cooper Prize, the Political Book Awards Political Biography of the Year, and the Costa Biography Award. And she's also the author of Cleopatra and Heroes, two other books of non-fiction, and now a novel, Peculiar Ground. Lucy, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. So why write a novel now at this point? I find that question quite hard to answer, and an even harder question is, why didn't I write one years and years ago? Because I love reading fiction. I've read loads of non-fiction in my life because... I'm identified as a non-fiction author, so I'm asked to review non-fiction. I read non-fiction in researching my own books. I've judged several non-fiction prizes. But whenever, whenever I'm free to read what I want to read, I nearly always pick up a novel. So why wouldn't I write one? <laughs> and this is a, it's a historical novel set across a number of time periods... So, I mean, presumably a hell of a lot of research went into this as well. No, I was very careful not to do any research. Ah. I think that it can get a bit dangerous when people acquire too much information. I mean, of course, you know, when you're writing non-fiction, that's what you're doing, mm-hmm. is amassing as much material as you possibly can. But with fiction, I thought there was a danger of overloading the structure of the narrative and, you know, let it sinking the souffle under mm-hmm. too many kind of additives. So I did it all from from memory and from 
the kind of general knowledge that I've acquired over over decades. That is incredibly impressive. I mean, it does feel like an incredibly densely researched historical novel. Well, I checked. You know, when I'd finished, then I fact-checked it to make sure I hadn't made any really foolish mistakes. And there was a dreadful moment uh, when I'd finished a first draft and indeed probably about a fifth draft and I go through my writing over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. Anyway, so in a fairly late stage of composition, when I was talking to someone at a party and he said, what are you up to? And I said, novel and blah, blah, blah. And I said, and one of the sort of key things about this novel is that there's a wall being built around a deer park of a great 17th century house in Oxfordshire. And this guy was a, a, an art historian, and he said, oh, people didn't build walls in the 17th century. And I thought, ah, no, my whole, my whole sort of narrative plan was collapsing before my very eyes. And I couldn't wait to get back from that party and, you know, get on, on Google. And he was wrong. He was absolutely wrong. <laughs> and um, in the very decade in which that part of my book is set in the 1660s, a wall was being built around the park at Blenheim, which is very close to my fictional estate. And the wall at Blenheim, I think, was seven miles in circumference. So my imagined wall is fairly unassuming by comparison. So how would you describe the book? Tell us what it's about then. So we've already started talking about what it's about, but tell us the... Okay. well, um, I always have to want to start with the proviso. It's about an awful lot of Mm -hmm. things. And whenever I try and sum it up, Um, I always think, oh, but I'm leaving so much out. And of course, whatever answer I give you will, I hope, be true, Mm -hmm. but I could give you any number of other possible answers. But okay, let's start. It's about two walls. And one wall is the one I've already mentioned, which is being built to enclose the park of a great house in Oxfordshire. And so to create a space which is private and exclusive and to be to be made beautiful, the narrator of the 17th century passages is a landscape designer who I've called Mr Norris. But Mr Norris is loosely, very loosely, inspired by the real-life John Evelyn, who was a great famous diarist, but who was also very interested in landscape design and an expert on trees. So that's one wall. And the other wall is the Berlin Wall. So the th- middle three sections of this five-section book are set in the mid-20th century, beginning in 1961, with the wall going up, dividing Berlin. Although, of course, it went up overnight in the form of a barbed wire fence. It didn't become a wall until a bit later. And then, in 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down, as we all know. And I I do allow three of my characters, four including the baby, to go to Berlin. But on the whole, I try to keep my characters very tightly contained Mm -hmm. within this private domain in Oxfordshire so that the the kind of world of events penetrate the walls of Witchwood Park but we're hearing sort of distant echoes of what's going on in the world outside. And of course I was going to sum up with this question at the end but seeing that we're talking about the walls already we are living in a world where there's refugee crises right across the world Donald Trump wants to build his wall. This was all going on while you were writing this book or is this just coincidental? Um, Well, of course, some of the walls have been there all along, I mean, for a long time. Certainly, Mr Trump has made the whole subject of wall building far more topical than Mm -hmm. I had anticipated it being. But, you know, when I started writing the book, which I suppose is four years ago, 
you know, there was already a wall running through Israel slash Palestine. Mm-hmm. There were, you know, the the walls in Belfast. There are, there are walls, mm-hmm. you know, that there's always been the Great Wall of China. I mean, people have been building these walls for all of human history. And it's probably futile. I mean, walls can be gone around mm-hmm. or tunnelled under or breached in other ways. So, yes, it's become really kind of current now that this idea of, you know, should you or should you not try to keep other people out with a kind of physical barrier. And, of course, then, of course, there's that, that there's a whole other question of... So we talk about physical walls, but there are, I mean, there are metaphorical walls as well. And I understand from reading elsewhere that the, the book originally started just with the 1961 weekend party section and sort of built out from there. So how did that happen? That's quite right. I started off thinking I was going to write a small and perfectly formed piece of fiction which would be set over one weekend and it would be that week that world changing weekend in August 1961 when literally overnight between midnight and breakfast time the Berlin Wall suddenly appeared and that seemed like a kind of a gift to a novelist so you have a very tightly constrained period of time which always helps to you know keep the keep the action unified but a, a sort of world shaking event going on in the background and uh, I always wanted the the big world historical event to be experienced as it were from a distance. You know, I didn't I didn't want to write a kind of eyewitness account of mm-hmm. you know, what was going on in Berlin that night. Um, so the idea of setting it in an English country house appealed to me, and I you know as soon as I started thinking about that, I you know began to have narrative ideas and plot ideas. And a country house weekend is a terrific vehicle for fiction because. Mm-hmm. It's almost a genre in itself, the country house. Well, for the same reason that the people who write soap operas have to get their characters going to the pub, an astonishing mm-hmm. amount, because if you can get people under one roof, mm-hmm. things start to happen between them. So, so I wrote that, and I was quite pleased with it. But in the course of writing it, more ideas had attached themselves to that slim story and I just, I just wanted to explore those ideas and it felt incomplete. Why the 17th century then? So what about that particular time period was interesting? Well, I think the Restoration is a fascinating moment in, in mm-hmm. English history because so part one is set in 1663 by part five is set in 1665. So within a few years of 1660 when the Stuart monarchs came back to England, Charles II resumed power. And I think in the popular imagination, that's a sort of rather merry period when you have Charles II, who's a rather sort of charismatic, glamorous king for all his many, many faults. Uh, But, you know, he has these gorgeous curly wigs and these mistresses and the theatres are open again and it looks like everyone's saying, you know, God save the king and having a happy time. But, of course, in reality... This was a nation which had been divided by civil war for a full generation Mm -hmm. or more. Every family had secrets. A lot of families had actually been divided so that, you know, cousin was fighting against cousin. The Royalist Intelligence Service was extremely efficient, Mm -hmm. and so was that of the Commonwealth. So people were spying on each other. And, of course, there were also the religious divisions and so I have a group of religious dissenters who are also political dissenters because mm-hmm. religion and politics are so intertwined in the 
in, in the 17th century history. You can't really separate them out. And so I have my dissenters work, worshipping in a sort of makeshift chapel in the forest just outside the wall within which in the park everything seems to be, you know, High Anglican and uh, aristocratic and monarchist again. So th- this, th- those are some of the things I was playing. This with. is also a period of time when you know the Enlightenment is is on the horizon, but people are still you know there's belief in witchcraft and things still going on as well. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I found most attractive about this period. So Mr. Norris, who the designer, who's one of the narrators. He talks a lot about the Royal Society, which was getting going at that point and was going to be a forum for the discussion of new scientific experiment and exploration. And it really was. It was the beginning of the Enlightenment. And we tend to associate the Enlightenment with the 18th century. But, it, you know, it, it gets going in the 17th century. But as you say, it's, it's running alongside. So, that we know, you've got the beginnings of the Enlightenment. You've still got the tail end of the Middle Ages. And, and I, I love it that Isaac Newton was a very serious student of and practitioner of alchemy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the great modern thinkers was still partly medieval in his mindset. And so, and that, of course, again, was terrifically useful to me for fictional purposes. And I have, I have a few witches, and I don't believe in the supernatural, but I think it provides a wonderful sort of symbolic language for describing those aspects of life that we don't understand. Tell me about the Witchwood, the house. So, again, I understand that's based on a a place that you're familiar with. Where does it come from? Well, I, I actually could have haven't quite made up my mind whether I do or don't want to sort of tell readers, you know, this is based on this house. But, but it's based on a house. It's, it's based on say. a house, and a very beautiful house, which a few of the public know because a rock festival takes place there in the summer. But the house itself is never open to the public. And I know it because um, my father, like Hugo Lane, who's a character in the novel, was the land agent at that big house and its estate. And, I mean, land agency is a profession not many people are familiar with, except possibly because Shula Archer briefly did that job. But anyway, my father was basically the manager mm-hmm. of this estate, which is an estate, apart from being a sort of rather glamorous place where people come and have drift about playing croquet and enjoying themselves. It's also a business. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are employed. There's a lot of work to be done in, in running it. And so I grew up in the agent's house, which is you know a smaller house on the edge of the park, which is an idyllic place to grow up. And I, I had a wonderful childhood. It's really wonderful. And then when I was just about to be 18, my father's boss died and my father changed jobs. And so we moved away, which meant that that place which had been my childhood home, became a kind of lost domain for me. You know, I could never go back. I Mm -hmm. I was about to leave home to go off to become a student in London. But most people, when they do that, you know, they can still go home. But I could never go back. And so I guess that sort of clothed that place, the house we lived in, the big house, the park, the forest around it, in a kind of, you know, numinous veil. You know, it became a sort of... You know, it's more than just a place I knew. It's a place that I've kind of dreamed of ever since. So that period of time when you were growing up there, though, I mean, this is, you know, it's obviously post-war. People have stopped that sort of idea of the age of deference that everybody was used to and grown up in and had been sort of irreparably damaged and changed by the wars. 
So you're growing up there in a period of time where that world is sort of, I mean, obviously it still exists, but it's sort of on its way out in terms of the way that, you know, these big houses, I mean, plenty of houses still employ lots and lots of people, but they're owned by the National Trust or, or whatever. You know, the idea of a house owned by somebody with then all of these other layers of people that are employed and that sort of system that had obviously survived for centuries is really on its way out at that point, isn't it? I mean, obviously you were you were young, but was that something that was, like, obvious? Um, yes, I think it was. I mean, I was young, as you say, so I was probably much less aware of that mm. then than I am with hindsight. But, of course... I mean, this is the the period when the National Trust was beginning to rescue houses, mm-hmm. many of which were otherwise going to be pulled down. I mean, you know, the, the lucky families managed to sell them off as schools or institutions of one kind or another. And some of them just literally demolished them because they, you know, they, they couldn't mm-hmm. maintain the roof. So, yes, it, it was a, a kind of way of life that was on its way out. Although something that interests me and I think comes through the the novel is the way that the rich people who own the houses come and go you know that political upheavals fortunes rise and fall but the people who work on the estates are much more more settled in a way and I mean one of the devices I use for that is that I have the same name so that the headkeeper in the 1660s has the same name as the headkeeper mm. in the 1960s and you know, I'm I'm not really suggesting that that would you know, that job would be passed down father to son over quite such a long period of time, but I think it is true that people who work on the land or in sort of rural jobs very often do stay put much more than the kind of plutocrats who employ them. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking about Peculiar Ground, Lucy Hughes-Hallett's first novel. And Lucy, I want to talk about the, some of the characters. We've already mentioned a few of them, but if we go through the, the three time periods, um, talk about, as well as the characters, what's sort of going on at those particular times. I think you've said enough about John Norris, actually. Let's, let's talk about um, Arthur Fortescue, who's the Earl of Waldingham, who is the the owner of the house that he's employed John Norris to to do his landscape, to plan his gardens and set out his gardens, and eventually to build this wall, to enclose, to make this place that they live a sort of a, a refuge from the outside world. Who is he? Well, he's he's returned from exile, and he was a very small child when his his father left the country, you know, taking the family with him. So he's grown up abroad. He's grown up, as a lot of those, um, you know, monarchist aristos did, going from, you know, court to court, staying in, in spare rooms, very precarious, anxious existence, obviously always hoping that eventually they'd be able to return to their homes, but but not being sure of it by any manner of means. 
and watching from afar as their friends and relations were being killed on the battlefield. And of course, uh, deep, I mean, not uh, this guy, Arthur, Lord Weldingham, he would have been barely aware of it, he'd been so young when it happened. But the, the beheading of King Charles I was, I think, a deeply traumatic mm-hmm. moment for the English of a certain kind of political stance, as you know, later the beheading of the French king was, because the kings really were seen as being semi-divine. And you know, you, to kill the king is to destabilise society in a way that a lot of people found absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. So they were living with that kind of breakdown of the hierarchy, which had seemed kind of eternal, and also with their own personal difficulties. But then he comes back. So by the time that you know, my story starts, he's back. He's reclaimed his estate... And he's employed John Norris to design the park for him. And then, just as a writer, I immensely enjoyed the relationship between the two men. Norris is the narrator. He's the um, he's quite kind of he's a, he's a bit buttoned up and anxious, and um, you know he he does everything right, and he's rather shy, and he absolutely the opposite of his employer, Lord Weldingham, who's flamboyant and charming and beautifully dressed. I I really enjoyed doing his clothes. And very eloquent and funny and flirty. And the kind of the balance between those two characters, I think, for me anyway, I I, I just love the kind of tension between those two. But so that he's introduced to us in 1663. Everything seems to be lovely. And, you know, we're hearing about his new silk coats that he's having made. And then suddenly, and this comes as a surprise, so I'm not going to be too specific, but something really awful mm-hmm. happens to him. And so that's the kind of first test to which he's subjected. And he rises to it rather well. You know, he demonstrates a kind of... Um, ability to forgive, a tolerance, a generosity, and a sort of courage, which I think is reveals some sort of extra uh, depth to his character. But then, in the last section of the book, he's subjected to a different kind of test. It's the year of the plague. People are walking out of London to escape the plague. The roads are absolutely crammed with people, and uh, this is another moment when suddenly I saw that, although. I didn't set out to write a book about what was happening in the yeah. world as I was writing. As I was describing those roads crammed with refugees, every front page of newspaper, every television screen was showing refugees trying to walk out of Syria, up through Turkey and up into northwestern Europe in, the, in an attempt to find a safer and better life. So actually I found it very moving and upsetting writing that part of the book because it was all around me. It wasn't just fiction. But anyway, and as a result of that situation, Weldingham is kind of put to the test and he doesn't respond with the generosity which um, you know, one would have hoped. Um, and I just wanted to say something about Cecily Rivers as well, who is Weldingham's niece, I think, and um, the woman who becomes the sort of love interest of, of John Norris... And she's, well, tell us what the position is that she's, her and her mother are in this sort of odd position in relation to the house. Yes, yes. So Cecily's mother was Lord Wildingham's sister. It's not too complicated, but, you know, pay attention. <laughs> and so when the older Lord Wildingham goes into exile, 
um, he sort of leaves his sister in charge of the house. She has married beneath her socially. She's married uh, a pastor who is um, a dissenter, both politically and religiously. And so she's sympathetic towards the Commonwealth. And so she is going to be much safer. So she stays in the big house. And she establishes there a kind of commune, which, like a lot of communes in the 20th century, begins full of high ideals and then becomes a place, a site of, of abuse. You know, somebody takes power, a person who then horribly abuses that power. And so there's that story, which is all really part of the backstory of Cecily and her mother. Cecily grows up in this place um, with a brother whose origins are obscure until fairly late in the narrative. And all of that is, again, it's part of the kind of... Um, Unease, which I hope throbs away behind the surface of the first part of the book, that sense that, that, as I would say, you know, everyone has lived through pretty strange times by the end of the Civil War and the Commonwealth. They've all got something that um, either they're repressing or that has made them angry or that they are not just repressing from their own consciousness but having to conceal from others. Moving forward to the 1960s, the period, as you've, you've already mentioned, that you know the Berlin Wall is going to is going to start to be built. There's conversation over the weekend about George Blake and the, and the spies. The other thing that happens at this point, you mentioned that John Norris is the narrator of of, of the earlier section. You also now change the perspective of the story into an, a number of narrators. Tell us something about that change in style. Yes, I, I love doing that. And so far we've mostly been talking about content. But of course, when you're a, a writer, as you know, what you're really thinking about is the construction of your sentences mm-hmm. and paragraphs and the, the vocabulary, the, the language you're using. And writing in a number of different voices was quite challenging, but really exciting. And I, I got very fond of my narrators, not that they're all good people, Getting inside a character, the extent that you're speaking through their voice, is very different from just describing a character as from the the point of view of a third-person narrator. And I think it also just varies the pace. This is quite a long book. And rather as with a piece of music, and when I'm writing, I do try to hear my prose in quite a musical way, that you you need to vary the tempo, vary the, the kind of the tone, vary the key. And using different voices was a you know a, a good way of doing that and of course it also allows you to tell the story from different viewpoints which um, you know gives the story extra perspective and i think that's that's most obvious in the in the sections that are narrated by nell yes well nell of course actually there's only one very short section narrated by nell but there are a lot that are from her point of view mm-hmm. and so again that's a different kind of voice so i wasn't you know, Nell doesn't use the word I, but when I'm writing, I am kind of inside her head when I'm writing her sections. And so she, of course, is watching the grown-ups and a lot of what's going on between them, she doesn't get. But because she's a bright child and bright children do often understand a great deal more than grown-ups realise they understand, it's a sort of nicely uh, sort of equivocal point to have the, you know, the narrator. And in each of the sections, I've got someone who's a bit of an outsider. Mm-hmm. So, you know, parts one and five, it's Mr Norris, who's 
you know, he he's not part of the family. He's watching the whole setup as an incomer. And then in part two, now a child is watching what's going on. In part three, there are sort of two outsiders, really. There's, there's Jamie, the young journalist, who's actually rather disliking the whole grand country house kind of setup. He sort of disapproves of it politically and socially. And, and that rather sort of grumpy point of view I found quite a useful one. And then in the, the, the fourth section, there is the Salim figure, who's uh, another someone who, who comes so from So Salim Malik, who's, he's a, a publisher that comes from, from Pakistan and he's basically involved in... He's been sort of dragged into the whole Salman Rushdie fatwa yes. situation. Yes, yes. I mean, he, he appears... In the central 1973 section, he's at Oxford mm-hmm. with several of the other characters. And then he goes goes home and back to Pakistan and makes a career for himself as a sort of magazine editor and publishes an extract from the Satanic Verses, which I never name in the book. And I never name mm-hmm. Salman Rushdie, but it's perfectly obvious what I'm talking about. And like a lot of people who read that novel and who published it, you know, he reads it without having any idea what kind of a hoo-ha it's going to cause. And then, of course, he, yes, he, he gets caught up in the troubles that spread from that publication. In a sense, he's a 20th century version of Mr Norris. And Salim himself is very anxious. And in writing his sections, I used a very sort of precise and syntactically perfect but rather pared-down kind of prose to try and give the impression of someone who's, you know, who's a bit repressed and anxious. Just to finish off then, what's next? Having written a novel, are you, uh, have you got the bug? Definitely, yes. I, I love writing fiction. It's so exciting. But I, mean, I just hope I can do it again. At the moment, I'm writing short stories. I've written three, and mm. I'll keep on with that. And I hope I'll you know, eventually right enough to make a collection. And maybe, with any luck, perhaps one of those stories might begin to feel like the first chapter of the next novel. <laughs> that would be nice. OK, if I would get you to, uh, to read us a little bit. Sure. Just... Shall I read the beginning? That's yeah. often a good place to start, yeah, isn't it? Then I don't have to indeed. explain what's going on. So it's all the reader will know is that it's 1663. It has been a grave disappointment to me to discover that his lordship has no interest really none whatsoever, in dendrology. I arrived here simultaneously with a pair of peafowl and a bucket full of goldfish. It is galling that my employer takes more pleasure in the creatures than he does in my designs for his grounds. He is impatient. Perhaps it's only human to be so. He wishes to beautify his domain, but he frets at slowness. When we talked in London, and I was able to fill his mind's eye with majestic vistas, Then he was satisfied. But when he sees the saplings reaching barely higher than the crown of his hat, he laughs at me. Avenues, Mr Norris, he said yesterday evening. These are sticks set for a bending race. The idea having once occurred to him, he set himself to realise it. This morning, he and another gentleman took horse, and like two shuttles drawing invisible thread, they wove themselves at great speed back and forth through the lines of young beeches that now traverse the park from side to side. There was much laughter and shouting, especially as they passed the ladies, assembled at the point where the avenues intersect, the trees forming a great cross which will be visible only to birds and to angels. 
I confess the gentlemen were very skilful, keeping pace like dancers, until nearing the point where the trees arrive at the perimeter, where the wall will shortly rise. They spurred on into a desperate gallop in the attempt to outdistance each other, and so raced on into a field full of turnips, to the great distress of Mr. Slatter. They are my lord's trees, his fields and his turnips. Like Slatter and his muddy-handed cohort, I must acknowledge the licence his proprietorship gives him, but it grieved me inordinately to find that eleven of my charges, my eight hundred carefully matched young beeches, have been damaged, five of them having the lead shoot snapped off. I attended him after dinner and informed him of the need for replacements. Mr Norris, Mr Norris, he said, it's hard for you to serve such a careless oaf, is it not? He authorised me to send for substitutes. He is not an oaf. Though it pained me, I took delight in the performance of this morning. He incorporated my avenue, vegetable and ponderous as it is, into a spectacle of darting grace. But it is true that I find him careless. To him, a tree is a thing which can be replaced by another thing like it. Is it lunacy in me to feel that this is not so? I've been talking to Lucy Hughes. Hello, we've been talking about her novel Peculiar Ground. Lucy, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you for inviting me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.